Welcome to Very Amusing with Carly Wiesel, your one-stop shop for the stories, secrets, and shenanigans of a popcorn-fueled theme park journalist. I'm your host, Carly Wiesel, and I am so happy to be here. If you're new to me yelling at you through a screen, welcome! Long story short, I am a reporter who exclusively and extensively covers theme parks. If you're listening, you're probably already a fan of them too. But if you wound up on this roller coaster ride through one woman's wacky world and have no idea what to expect, there's plenty for you too, I promise. This podcast, for the most part, is going to cover Universal and Disney parks. Will we dabble in a Legoland? Maybe. Will I give you a play-by-play of the blissful day I spent completely alone at Sanrio Puro Land in Japan? I hope so, but for the most part, we're gonna stick to wizarding worlds, fantasy lands, and everything in between. Basically, if you don't already find theme parks absolutely fascinating and worthy of all your time, money, and vacation days, you will by the end of this season. What I've always found so fascinating about parks, Disney's in particular, is that they are so much more than a carousel and a coaster and a handful of familiar characters. They're a nexus for all culture, where society and history and family intersect. Disney really is... America's church, to put it broadly, and the interviews and surprises in store this season really sum that up. What I'm most excited to do with Very Amusing is bring you the stories I've always wanted to tell in the format I want to tell them in. I've been covering theme parks for magazines and websites for years now, and one of the biggest struggles with what I do is that I'm so deeply invested in all things Disney and Universal, but I'm not always able to tell those stories for that audience. When you're a freelance writer, you're often selling stories that the publications are in need of, not necessarily the ones you're personally curious about. I spent my first few years writing about Disney fully siphoned off from the fan community, focused on serving the casual visitor the information they need to plan a trip. But, you know, you spend enough time obsessing about new footage added to living with the land, or the origins of Beverly, or pizza fries, and well, it just consumes your life. Could I use a few less hours per week on Twitter? Yes, absolutely, and I'm pretty sure everyone would agree with that. But either way, I'm just so excited to tell theme park stories to theme park fans. Now, this is just the first episode of our first season, but this project has been in the works for a very long time. I began putting this together in 2019, which I believe we now refer to as ye olden times, when Sweet Tomatoes was still a company and FastPass still existed. And while I never expected this to launch at a time when visiting theme parks puts your personal health and safety into question, I'm really happy with the way this season still turned out. I'm so proud to bring you stories that I think neither wallow in our current situation or live in a false reality that ignores it. Truth is, if you're tapped into theme parks at this point, you know what's happening there. They're cleaning the rides, there's social distancing lines, you can't hug a minion, yada, 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 yada. You know it, I know it, we don't have to dwell on it. To me, Very Amusing isn't a space to serve as a reminder of the truly awful situation we're all in and that half of these parks are still closed. But instead, just here to give you a good time and leave you on a happy note. And that's really all we can do beyond sending each and every one of you a frozen butterbeer, which may or may not be my favorite form of it. I know. Basically, I just want this podcast to feel like your social media feeds come to life. A mix of relevant jokes, facts you may not know, and interesting things worth hearing more about. You're probably wondering, what are these stories I'm dying to tell you? 
Truth is, it's, it's everything. We've got interviews I've always wanted to do with some very cool people, deep dives on things that we all laughed about for a minute online and never really thought about again, and a lot of stuff I've learned while reporting other stories that I've never been able to share before. Some of that is what this episode is. I've had the unbelievable pleasure of seeing some secret Disney spaces as part of my job, and I never really had anywhere to talk about it before. That being said, we will obviously be touching on theme park news each week, but this is not by any means a theme park news podcast. I want to make that very clear. Frankly, a lot of other people do it really well, and I'm not trying to compete with them. I do not want my old pal Craig Williams to troll me any harder than he already does online, so just keep that in mind. Each week will be a completely new reported story, except for a few surprise guests, which are definitely worth abandoning episode structure for. Oh, one more thing before we get started. 747 Churros, our very amusing hotline, is also very real. Messages have been rolling in since our trailer went online, and a good number of them are just your gleeful shock that the line does in fact exist, which pleases me to no end. What you may not know, however, is that these calls go directly to my personal inbox. So unlike a DM on Instagram or a Twitter mention, I see each and every one. My mom has already figured this out, and she has reached me on it and will continue to instead of my personal phone. So, call me. Seriously, I want to hear from you. I want to solve your long-held universal mysteries, answer your niche questions, or just hear you rant about annual passes. Now, these calls are intended to be played on the show and will be at the end of every episode. But if you have something you want to share and not have it be repeated, just say so. Tips, intel, rumors, whatever. If you tell me not to play a call, I never, ever will. As a journalist, you have my word on that. Consider it a direct pipeline to someone who really wants to hear what you have to say, whether or not it's to be repeated. So, that's very amusing. A little of this, a little of that, and a whole lot of theme parks. Now, let's start the show. Okay, you know that feeling that everyone knows something that you don't? For me, that used to be Quince, but no more. Quince is a truly astounding retailer, essentially carrying everything a person on your mood board would wear. We're talking washable silk blouses, chic leather bags, 14-karat gold jewelry, European linen dresses, and the best part of all is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They're up here with $50 Mongolian cashmere sweaters. $50! Beautiful, timeless items you can wear and actually live in. Meaning, you don't have to be scared to bring them on your theme park travels. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And if you're sensitive to retailers like I am, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. But it's not just your everyday work-life clothes. They have everything. I recently joined a new gym, big deal for me, and desperately needed new workout clothes to wear there. It's kind of like an LA gym. It's like, it kind of got to look cute. So I ordered a pair of their ultra form bike shorts and high-rise pocket leggings. And when I tell you, the quality of these leggings is truly on par with brands I paid three times as much for, which really kind of makes me love these three times more. I'm not only going to buy them again, but 
actually buy the other travel stuff in my cart because they have things like beautiful pastel suitcases for 129 bucks and these wildly affordable compression packing cubes that I have been waiting forever to buy compression packing cubes and they're always so pricey and here the price fits. So if you want to get ready for work, your new gym, travel, anything in your life, go to Quince. Quince.com slash amusing will get you free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. Ooh, that's nice for someone who puts stuff off like I do. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash amusing to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash amusing. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. Today, we will be discussing secret spaces at Disney parks. Now, from a Disney fan to likely another Disney fan, let me tell you this. We're not talking about stuff like Victoria and Albert's, the elegant restaurant at Disney's Grand Floridian Resort. We're also not going to touch Disneyland's Club 33. We all know there's a fancy restaurant in New Orleans Square with a forever long waiting list to become a member and a bar that makes stiff cocktails for a lucky set in a park that, for the most part, still doesn't really sell alcohol. We're going deeper than that, covering the details you've never heard about places that, even as a fan, you may be unfamiliar with. From the underground barbershop to the tallest turret within Magic Kingdom, and the secret supper club, train car, and hidden apartment at Disneyland, I'll be taking you inside every hard-to-see hidden space at both theme park resorts, providing you a first-person look at what these under-the-radar places are really like. Now, if we're going to discuss secret spaces at Disney parks, we should begin with the most magical of all. The hallowed halls where royalty and commoners sometimes intersect. The famed, often fabled places that have turned both iconic and intriguing in fans' eyes. No, we're not going inside Cinderella Castle's suite just yet, which we'll discuss momentarily. We're talking Utilidors, the famed literal underbelly of the most magical place on Earth. As links your parents have texted you to slideshows about Disney secrets have previously proclaimed, yes, there is indeed an underground system of interconnected tunnels beneath the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World. Except technically, they're on the ground floor and the Magic Kingdom is on the second floor. It sounds real kooky, but essentially it keeps the theming and magic as intact as possible upstairs. There's a lot of infrastructure required to run that park, and these underground, but not really underground passageways, only help to accomplish that. I want to get one thing out of the way before we get deep into Utilidors. They are not home to a parade of headless characters and half-clothed goofies standing in line for a quick lunch that you may be envisioning. They're really purposeful, and having been in the Utilidors a few times now, they're also kind of boring. You can actually see them as part of Disney World's ticketed backstage magic tour, but frankly, the juice isn't worth the squeeze for that portion of it. One employee I spoke to described them as the tunnels players emerge out of in an older football stadium, which I think is spot on. They're concrete walkways with visible pipes and exposed lighting and walls painted with colors to indicate what land you're currently below. Frankly put, they're not very cute. Now, until I began reporting this episode, I thought that was where the fun ended. Just, haha, there's tunnels below the Magic Kingdom, call it a day. 
Only to my surprise, in speaking to some Disney employees who shall remain very anonymous, there is some bizarre stuff happening down there that if you work in the Magic Kingdom, you are extremely desensitized to. And if you're me, you're utterly flabbergasted by. Here's a Disney employee telling me something I never, ever, ever, ever in a million years thought I would hear happens at Disney's Magic Kingdom. You're probably familiar with New York, how some areas are just like weird, questionable peddlers selling questionable jewelry on the sidewalk. <laughs> yes. Like once a week, there's just one of those in the Utilidor. Wait, what do you mean? Like this is some questionable guy selling jewelry in the Utilidors. Just selling jewelry? Yeah. I've never heard this. this I, there's no way. It's like, like the 42nd Street train station. It's so weird. Like, this is black table, and Disney just seems okay with it. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> I, I, I want to believe you, but my brain will not understand. <laughs> I didn't believe it either, because, like, I had friends going to traditions before me, because I was a CP. Um, and they're like, those are weird guys trying to sell jewelry to us. I was like, no. And then I saw it one day. It's like, What? not believe this when I was first told it, but I checked with some people and it's very true. All I'm going to say is if you are listening to this and you have bought something from a Utilidor jewelry vendor, please, for the love of God, call us at 747 Churros. I need to hear from you. I need to know what type of bags they're selling. What type of jewelry? Is it beaded? Is it silver? I must know. As someone who purchased an inordinate amount of jewelry from an accessory store in a New York City subway station, please tell me everything. Please. Please. Now, that's not the only thing happening down there that guests are unfamiliar with. There's Kingdom Cutters Barbershop, where you can get a cheap haircut in line with corporate hair guidelines, referred to as Disney look. And if the cafeteria being called the Mouseketeria wasn't joyful enough, there's also a subway. Yes, a secret subway sandwich shop in the Magic Kingdom, apparently located at 1000 Tunnel Way. Again, if you're listening to this and you work there, this is not a big deal for you. But for the rest of us who debate what to get at Casey's Corner while y'all order an Italian PMT with so much lettuce it looks like an iceberg salad, it's melding my mind. But still, my favorite insight about this secret space are the trash compactors. <laughs> Oh, yes. If you work down there, that audio cue means it's trash time, baby. I spoke with a few different cast members about this, but here's one again telling me the full lowdown of what happens with Trash Underground. Okay, so there's two trash compactors. One goes to Adventureland to the what they call the mouth of the tunnel, the exit of the Utilidor. And one goes from Tomorrowland, kind of by Cosmic Rays, to the mouth of the Utilidor. So once the Tomorrowland goes, it plays Wally music the entire length. And when the Adventureland one goes, it plays Trash from the Camp from Tarzan the entire way. So like a few times a day, you'll hear, heads up Magic Kingdom, a trash compactor box is making its way from Adventureland to the mouth of the tunnel. Please use an alternate route if available. And then you'll hear a Trash in the Camp on repeat for like 15 minutes when it's doing that. This is unbelievable to me. As someone who once worked at a record label and happened to sit by the entry elevators where the same five music videos would play on a loop all day, I know that feeling. To this day, if I hear Shakira's She-Wolf, my body immediately seizes up. 
I can hear one note of Sean Kingston's 911, not a popular song, may I add, and immediately identify it. So for cast members to have this reaction to a song from an animated Tarzan movie that came out two decades ago, or just from hearing a robot say its name, wow. The legends of the Utilidors go far beyond what I ever imagined. On the other side of the coin from literal trash trucks is the symbolic home to Magic Kingdom's emblematic princess. Cinderella Castle Suite is far and away the toughest secret spot within Walt Disney World to visit. I never thought I would end up there. Never even entertained the idea until I was taken there very early one morning as part of a story I was writing. That piece was focused on Disney's Crown Collection, a set of luxury tier VIP experiences available to Walt Disney World guests with deep pockets. But hanging in a princess's bedroom isn't even really included with Crown Collection. To my knowledge, the only way to actually get inside Cinderella Castle Suite is to book a $12,000 World of Dreams VIP tour that Disney doesn't discuss and probably doesn't offer right now, or just be Katy Perry. So I have no idea why they let me up there, and I have no clue if I'll ever make it back. Given that Cinderella Castle Suite is so infrequently discussed, I wanted to walk you through what you'd find if you, I don't know, blew a lot of rent payments on a blowout day in the park. A door to the right once you step through the castle walkway opens up to essentially a lobby with beige tile and gray vaulted ceilings that looks as though you were checking into an old castle monastery converted into a boutique hotel. And I mean that as a compliment. With a wooden desk topped with a floral arrangement, bronzed lighting fixtures hanging above, and an embroidered tapestry probably 15 feet high, it's here where the nuanced nods to Cinderella, both as a character and a long-off era in time, begin. At the top of that tapestry is a plump orange pumpkin, a clear homage to her rags-to-riches harvest miracle that granted Cinderella her regal lifestyle, and a sign of what's to come. After a short ride on an elevator with gold-mirrored doors and tufted walls intended to look like the inside of Cinderella's coach, you'll emerge into a lobby with a hand-laid mosaic tile floor, and in its center, a beautiful golden tile carriage. Now, if normal people leave their purses and keys at the front door, it's only right that Cinderella's entryway is, well, not as commonplace, considering there's a dang glass slipper on display within a cabinet that also holds a crown and scepter atop teeny tiny pillowed pedestals lined with fringe. Oh, it's adorable. A trio of artwork by renowned Disney illustrator Mary Blair hangs within golden frames on golden wallpaper embellished with, yep, Golden swirls. This is a princess's home after all, and every design choice reinforces that. Once you tire from craning your neck upwards to see the paintings on the ceiling recounting Cinderella's famed story, you step inside what's essentially a small hotel room, only with way, 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 way more to look at. In the main room are accoutrement of a time before ample USB plugs, with a limestone fireplace, columns embellished with Jack and Gus Gus at their tops, and plenty of antique tables, chests, and furniture, including a secretary's desk from, I believe, the 1600s. It is the 21st century, so there's also a flat-screen TV disguised as digital artwork, making you the only person who can get Stacy's must-do Disney on a hotel TV while currently inside a Disney theme park. The beds, surrounded by golden blue wooden frames with gold seas on top, are covered by golden blue bed sheets and golden blue pillows and golden blue curtains, which 
kind of matched the old version of Cinderella Castle better before it got its new pink hue earlier this summer, but I think we'll let it slide. It's because of all the Disney spaces I've ever seen firsthand, either prominent or removed from public view, I don't think any have incorporated as many design elements as this space. The floor of the bedroom incorporates geometric tile work that has an it's-a-small-world color scheme of glittery pale pastels, while also juxtaposed against wood and stone and even more materials like bronze fixtures and textiles within the bathroom. In that bath chamber, as they call it, there's a jacuzzi bathtub bookended by mosaic tile work, including an inlay design of Cinderella Castle itself, a real aspirational power move for anyone like me who has lived in a bad apartment. You may be surprised to learn, too, that royalty use H2O Disney bath products as well, making that small tube of body lotion or even the hard-to-find softening mint foot rub found in some deluxe club-level hotel rooms even more regal. Now, while there, we were told we could photograph anything we wanted in the suite except for one thing, the toilet. And I don't know if I'm supposed to share this with you, because this isn't technically a photograph, but it's a royal throne. The toilet itself is just a regular toilet, but with embellished wood and curtains hanging overhead, it's fit for any princess who has to take a tinkle. Now, the suite technically sleeps six. There's a pull-out couch, very regal. And what surprised me most being up there wasn't its size, but how disorienting it is. I always imagined I'd look out on the decorative glass windows with their homage to Cinderella's storyline and have an uninhibited bird's-eye view of the park. But the windows are all kind of textured and not really clear, as if you got jelly on your glasses and couldn't see right. Now, I won't lie. It's pretty magical up there, and I feel a little bad even talking about its gold accents and antique furniture and famed artwork, because there is no amount you can pay to stay overnight in Cinderella Castle Suite. Traditionally, it is only offered to certain celebrity guests or friends of Disney, or as a prize in a charitable contest, because when there are people staying in the suite, Disney Guest Relations cast members need to be in the park too, on call overnight in case anybody there is in need. But still... Even as famous as this one bedroom is, it's not by any means the only secretive one Disney has on hand. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Disneyland, given its rich history and direct ties to Walt Disney, has plenty of secret spots because when Walt was alive, he actually used some of them. As Disneyland fans and locals know, the lamp that stays permanently illuminated above Disneyland's Main Street Firehouse isn't just an homage to Walt, but his one-time home away from home. Walt's apartment is still intact to this day, and though rare, there are ways to see it. 
I've only visited Walt's apartment once as part of an Adventures by Disney tour of Southern California, but a visit is included on Disneyland's ticketed Walk in Walt's Footsteps tour. It's not as elegant or ornate as you might expect for someone building a massive entertainment complex and slapping his name across the front, but it did the trick. The 500-square-foot apartment, which accommodates pull-out couches instead of beds, is somewhat lean and very much in line with his wife Lillian's tastes, with a turn-of-the-century Victorian decor that matches that of Main Street, USA. While guests are not allowed to take photos while inside, except for a singular posed one by that lamp, there's actually a whole video of Walt's apartment online thanks to Attractions Magazine, who visited during a media event. If you're curious to see the actual antiques and furniture in the space, I recommend it. I'll put the link in our show notes. Now, when you run a successful entertainment company and say the whimsy of a small, somewhat dark apartment used as a necessary pied-a-terre begins to wear off, what does one do? Well, find a better place in your own backyard and commission your employees to design it. Walt never got a chance to see his would-be upgrade, an apartment built for entertaining within Disneyland's New Orleans Square, but you can for the cool price of a Nissan Versa. That's because the Disneyland Dream Suite, a two-bedroom 19th century French-inspired place with magical rigged reveals, is also home to a very special, exclusive, secretive $15,000 dinner. It's called 21 Royal, and I, by some grace of God, was invited to write about it. Sticker shock aside, let's talk about what 15K gets you. Each of the dozen guests are given one-day park hopper tickets and valet parking at Disney's Grand Californian Hotel, as well as one heck of a dinner party. The meal, which is about seven courses, includes everything. Endless wine, a couple cocktails, dinner, dessert, tax, gratuity, and even a few little surprises at the end of the night. Before it was the priciest anniversary dinner in town, the Disneyland Dream Suite was used as a sort of promotional overnight stay, similar to Disney World's Cinderella Castle. There's been a lot of coverage over the years of the actual apartment, which was redesigned with famed production designer Dorothy Redmond's 60s sketches and the gallery shop that preceded it. So we're instead going to focus on what it's like to sit in a secret room filled with massive oil paintings of Haunted Mansion and the Mark Twain Riverboat as historical recreations, slurping down sea urchin foam, and chasing pastrami Kobe beef with a glass of Pinot and some French white wine I still cannot pronounce the name of. Now, the meal itself was remarkable, because of course it was. Granted, I attended with a food outlet, so the chefs were flexing their muscles, but... You know, the literal ones. But the team is exceptional. We ate this one dish that was inspired by the waves crashing into a tide pool that had Santa Barbara spot prawns and red abalone over a sea bean that was honestly as inventive as any Disney ride itself, even as reductive as that comparison is, because the ingredient sourcing, the execution, and the technique here is superb. But when it comes to Disney fans, we sometimes like what we like. I'll eat roasted curried pheasant, no problem. But when I'm on Disneyland territory, my brain just somehow craves plastic cheese dip and corn dogs, even if I know I'm at a fancy dinner I cannot personally afford. And thankfully, I'm not the only one who contains multitudes. In the case of Disney Food Blog's AJ Wolf, she shot for the moon when it came to mixing her interests at 21 Royal and, well, ended among the caviar stars. Here's AJ Wolf. 
Oh man, it was so funny, Carly. So of course the spearhead of the 21 Royal meal that I had was Heather Sievers, who is one of my best friends in the whole world and um, covers a lot of Disneyland stuff for Disney food blog. But she and I have been friends for a hundred years. And she said, let's do this. Let's get a bunch of friends together and let's do it. When are we ever going to have the chance again? Right? I mean, I'm okay with fancy food. I don't mind fancy food and I enjoy fancy food. But when we were going to 21 Royal, we wanted comfort food. We wanted comfort food done really, really well. So we said, you know, can we get, can we get some of our favorites from around the parks? Can we get them the truffle mac and cheese from Napa Rose, right? Because uh, Chef Andrew Sutton is in charge of the kitchen there anyway. You know, he's in charge of all the, the big name kitchens. And so we said, can we do that? And can we do the corn dogs from Little Red Wagon? And, you know, we had all these things we wanted to try to get at 21 World because you're paying so much money. I think it's like $15,000 for a meal there and not per person, but overall. And, y- you know, you want it, you want the stuff you want. And so we said, we definitely don't want caviar because none of us are big caviar fans and not, none of us are big caviar eaters. And so we said, that's what we want to do. And they said, we will try, basically. What ended up happening was we got caviar as our first <laughs> our first dish, but they put it onto um, mashed potato puffs. <laughs> so they put it on. <laughs> So it was, it was so, it was so, they did such a great job. Of course, everything was absolutely delicious. I think they did kind of a play on like a meatloaf and they did, but they did some other stuff that was, I mean, it was just phenomenal. It was an amazing dinner. It's worth every penny and it was so much fun. It was an amazing night. It was so much fun. We had such a blast. Everything was delicious and we even ate the caviar. I'll tell ya, the irony of being a stone's throw away from Dole Whip was not lost on me either, even as exciting as freely drinking wine and cocktails within Disneyland was. Now, I went to 21 Royal pre-Oga's Cantina, which is the first public-facing bar at Disneyland. But honestly, those drinks don't do it for me. It's got nothing on a sommelier pouring you some fancy wine and then hearing all about its origins in Iceland while you're eight drinks deep and have no clue what he is saying. You take a photo at the beginning of the night in the sitting room and a photo at the end of the night, and let me just say, the two don't look similar. Now, this isn't a regular dinner out, and the price tag absolutely suggests that. Well-heeled Disney fans have been known to have post-wedding dinners, anniversaries, even baby showers within the space. Here's AJ Wolf once more. 21 Royal is an amazing experience, and I'm intrigued how often they're booked. I was told that they're pretty much booked you know, they only do it a couple nights a week, but it's pretty well booked. And it's not just like big companies who are doing like their Christmas party. It's families who are celebrating a birthday and they want to make it really, really special, you know? So it's not just for, you know, those Uber elite. Lots of people do save up to have that experience. And it's an amazing experience. It's more of an event than a restaurant. And the entire evening has a meticulously calculated flow. You'll take a fancy little coach bus from Disney's Grand Californian through backstage areas, entering by crossing over the Disneyland Railroad into New Orleans Square. There are butlers who greet you with a cold towel if it's hot out, tell you about the space, give a toast, take that photo, and then the first of a few magical moments happens. Cocktail hour consists of walking around the apartment in its attached courtyard and imbibing in a choice of two cocktails, either gin or whiskey-based when I attended. You're free to explore the hidden features of the themed and almost entirely unused bedrooms, both of which have special goodnight kiss effects. 
One has a symbolic model train traveling around, and another fiber optic artwork of Peter Pan mermaids. But the highlight is in the magical bathtub with lighting emulating the night sky within the master suite. Now, when I attended, I was there as media. I was not a paying guest, and I was in full reporter mode. I was just trying to make sure I didn't bungle every wine decanter or potato mousseline detail. My friend Heather Seavers, however, went with AJ and a group of friends and had an actual guest experience, which, considering we weren't allowed to touch almost anything in the space, sounds incredible. I I had been in that space a few times. Yeah, I'd been back when it was the gallery, and I've also done... I've had a couple of tours where we've gotten to go in there for different things, but that was my first time ever spending that much time in there. It's usually you're with a group, they show you the little goodnight kiss effects and things, and you kind of just, you know, make your way through. But that was the first time I've ever gotten to sit on couches and drink drinks. And, and you really feel like it's your home for the night, which is their goal. And they, they stress that so much when you come in, it's like, this is your space for the night. So make yourself comfortable, kick off your shoes if you want. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. It's so fun to just be with, you know, if you're up there with your best friends and it's just such a moment, like we didn't have any husbands with us. It was just, my core group was just girlfriends and it was so much fun. I've always considered a downfall of 21 Royal to be that it felt like having a party in the world's most off-the-radar Airbnb, since we weren't really allowed to touch anything and it's a home that mostly goes unused. But my friend Heather had a different experience, one that makes me extremely envious of her slumber party vibes. They were like taking photos for us, piled on beds, and you're not allowed to get under the covers, which is understandable. But um, no, they were like, sit on the beds, get in the bathtub. It was wild. We weren't allowed to turn the water on, but like, um, so you could get the full effect of the little, of the little, uh, you know, magical lights and things that are in that, that bathtub in there. There's the hidden Mickey and the little starlight. They're like, get in there and turn the lights off so you can see what this does. So we're like piling 10 people into this bathtub. I wrote a whole critique of 21 Royal, but personally, the only real issue I have with it is that you have to beg for a cocktail at the end of the night to drink while watching Fantasmic. That balcony is the world's best vantage point of that show, and it really feels like Mickey is pointing directly at you. But still, from the iconic procedure I told you about with the before and after photo, it's pretty clear that uh, after an extremely refined five-hour food and booze fest, nobody really needs a nightcap. They're actually so classy that if you roll up in heels, they'll give you a pair of single-use flats to wear home, which made it possible for our crew to shuffle over to Big Thunder Mountain Railroad prior to park closing. Royal is definitely a bucket list event, and I'll cherish all of it for the rest of my life, including the commemorative pin and very cool print of the Haunted Mansion they gave us on the way out. But there is still one thing I have never done at Disney and have been dying to do that is about $15,000 cheaper, and that's ride in the Lily Bell train car on the Disneyland Railroad. Essentially, the Lily Bell is an ornate passenger car that's not always on the tracks and therefore not so easy to get on board. 
with maroon upholstered velvet seats, fringed curtains, and tchotchkes reminiscent of simpler Victorian-era times. It's a unique experience in a secret space that I myself have never seen, complete with an old-school commemorative ticket for riding that I want so badly. So I asked the queen of 21 Royal Vibes, Heather Seavers, about it, since as a Disneyland local, she's been on the Lily Bell a number of times. Here's what she had to say about it. Well, it is very lovely. It's a Victorian parlor car, and it actually, um, it's the last remaining train car from the opening day of Disneyland, which is kind of a cool little fact. So I actually found an article by Time Magazine, which was really interesting, and it says it was converted in 1975, and then back then it was supposed to be like a VIP perk. And one of the first notable guests was um, Japanese Emperor Hirohito. I could be butchering that, but um, and his wife, the Empress Nagako, they visited Disneyland and they were like the first celebrities to uh, ride the train. And it was interesting because they were only at Disneyland for 70 minutes is what the article said on Time Magazine. <laughs> so while they were there for that 70 minutes, they watched a parade. It was America on Parade on Main Street. They rode one of the Main Street vehicles, and then they took the Grand Circle Tour on the Lily Bell. So I thought that was kind of a cool little fact. But when you ride the Lily Bell, you'll notice, and you've probably seen in some of the photos, there's little knickknack type of things everywhere that, by the way, are all glued down because people unfortunately have sticky fingers. And uh, one of the things hanging in the cart is a Japanese kimono. And I actually haven't ridden in a while, so I'm not sure what's still there, but it, it has been there every time I've ridden. And I've always heard kind of different things like, oh, that was Walt's robe. And then we're like, eh, I, don't, I don't know. It looks like a lady's Japanese kimono. Like, don't think, I don't think they'd have Walt's robe just hanging on the wall in there. But um, I was thinking after doing all this research that it might be a little tribute to uh, the Japanese emperor and empress that were the first VIP guests on the train. But, you know, that's just what I'm going to tell myself. But there's other things there. There's a, a little glass set with a decanter. There's some books. There's a really cute photo of Lillian and Walt in a really pretty um, little ornate Victorian frame. And then there's also a guest book in one of the drawers. You can sign the guest book. So that's kind of a fun little thing to flip through. Now, the Lily Bell has never been easy to access. It's a process, as Heather went on to explain to me as our in-house train expert at the moment. But I always thought you just roll up and hope it'll happen. It appears that weather is much more of a factor than I had previously anticipated. The Lily Bell is not something that you can just go hop right on. So they don't always have it out. The Lily Bell is only on the tracks if the weather is perfect. Can't be too hot can't be raining. They don't want it to get dirty inside, obviously. And it's always pristine. So you, if there's any kind of situation, weather-wise, even winds, they don't put it out. So if you see it out, your chances are more than likely you may be able to ride it. But, but again, it's, it's not always there. It used to be that you could just go to the station and say, is it possible for me to ride the Lilybell today? But I've heard that over the past couple of years, they're a little more strict with it. So I don't know the exact protocol anymore, but just visiting day by day, it's kind of a hit and miss situation. So according to Heather, there are three ways to get on board. 
One, you can be extremely lucky with timing and availability and everything working out. Two, by booking Disneyland's Grand Circle Tour, which includes a weather-permitting guarantee that you'll experience the passenger car. Or three, requesting it while on a pricey but personal VIP tour led by one of Disneyland's wonderful guides. If anyone else is thinking, woo, when Disneyland reopens, I'm going to take my chances and get my butt in those velvet seats like I have for the past hour, well, you may want to join me in shedding a tear for our tiny train dreams. Because unfortunately, in fact-checking this portion of the episode, it appears it's going to be somewhat more impossible to get on board going forward. Disney officials confirmed with guest relations that the last Grand Circle tour was in May 2019. Now, the website is still live, and no dates are currently offered, obviously, as Disneyland remains closed due to COVID-19. But apparently, since over a year ago, the Disneyland Railroad has not been able to accommodate guest requests to ride the Lily Bell either. Now, I looked into it, and it appears the Lily Bell may still be granted access through Disneyland VIP tours, that third option. But again, post-pandemic, we're not sure what's going to happen either way. Still, according to Heather, it's not the first time the experience has been changed up. It's sort of changed over the years. It used to be that if you rode, they would just let your group go inside. No cast member, you sort of had the place to yourself. When you ride the Lily Bell, you have to commit to the full Grand Circle Tour. You cannot get off and on at any of the stops. But it used to be that they would not have a cast member in with you. Then, you know, I talked about everything being glued down and all of that crazy stuff. People got a little rambunctious in there at times. I heard some inappropriate things might have happened. I don't know details. I don't know if I want to know details. So then it was that a cast member did need to ride with your party. Castles, tunnels, trains, apartments, dinner parties. There are so many magical parts to these parks that simply go unseen. I hope our little glimpse beyond the curtain, inside the turret, and through the apartment gave you a little more familiarity with these long sheltered locales, and perhaps even inspired you to start finding a way to get inside. Hi, my name's Christina, and I was, my question is, is it crazy to go to Asia for two weeks and do Hong Kong, Shanghai, and Tokyo Disney in one trip? asking for a future honeymooner. Thanks. Hi, Christina. Thank you so much for reaching out. Now, I'll start by saying, quite obviously, there are many travel restrictions in place right now, and we really don't have a clear idea of when they will be lifted. So as you're planning, just prepare for that. I am of the same mentality as you are, though. If I'm going that far, I want to see it all. I want to squeeze every drop out of my trip. And so I think the issue here is not that it's ludicrous to go to all three Disney parks. I think the only problem would be splitting your time between each theme park resort and each city because there's so much to see, especially in Tokyo and Shanghai. I, just in December, did Tokyo, Shanghai, and Singapore truly right down to the pandemic wire. It may very well be my last vacation for a decade. Uh, and there's so much fun to be had beyond the parks in those cities, which is why I would absolutely encourage you to plan to explore those towns as well. So yes, I do think it's doable. If this is your plan, I would recommend two to three days at Tokyo Disney Resort. If you do three, that would be to add a second trip to Tokyo Disney Sea, which, as many people know, is the best Disney park to ever have existed. It lives up to the high 
hype and then some. Uh, if anyone is curious, check out TDR Explorer. He's the go-to Tokyo guy. He will make you extremely envious of where he lives. Now, in terms of Hong Kong, people usually say it's a one-day park, but honestly, I had such a blast there that I bought a third day of admission. I absolutely loved it. I'd recommend one full day if you're being lean on time, but I mean, if you can swing it, spread it out with a character breakfast at one of the hotels, which is great, followed by just a casual afternoon back in the park on day two. Now, in terms of Shanghai, and again, this is in normal times, just make sure to be aware of their visa requirements. So, Pre-pandemic, if you were visiting Shanghai for under 72 hours, you wouldn't need a Chinese visa so long as, and this is generalizing, but your flight in and your flight out are to different countries, one of which can be Hong Kong. There also appears to be a 144-hour visa-free visit that personally, I'm not very well versed in. There's a lot more detail in that, which I highly recommend you Google. There are some incredible guides about it, but basically that's the summarized version. Now, I'll add that I may be biased because personally, I had to get a visa when I visited China. My first visit was for the opening of Shanghai Disney, and because I was reporting on it, I had to get a specific journalist visa approved. And because that is still in my passport, I continue to get a visa whenever I go back to China. Again, this policy could very likely change. It could be years before this is standard practice again. No one really knows what's going to happen. But I think the pain in the butt of getting the actual Chinese visa is worth it. Shanghai is one of the coolest cities in the world. And if you don't believe me, take a look at Shanghai Girl Eats or Molly spelled M-O-L-L-A-Y on Instagram and you'll see what I mean. Also, you get a sick page in your passport that looks very cool that is like very international. So that's great too. Now, where the parks are concerned, you could do Shanghai Disney Resort in one long day if you throw enough money at it. Shanghai has this paid fast pass program called Disney Premier Access, so you can feasibly buy your way onto rides more quickly and cram everything into one day. It would be a long day, I'll tell you that, but I've done it and it's doable if you skip a few things here and there. So yeah, I do think you can go to all three cities on your honeymoon. It'll definitely be an active honeymoon, but the whole point of it is to do a once in a lifetime trip. And I don't know, crossing half of the world's Disney resorts off your list in one swoop, that's memorable. Hey, Carly, um, this is Kira. Uh, <laughs> you don't know me, but my just issue in general is uh, when are they going to eliminate Autopia? Because the thought of it being in the park while I am not there and existing still is very uh, challenging to me, and I want it gone. So that's kind of just my issue. Um, if you have any insight onto when we're going to get rid of that, I would love to know. Thank you. Thank you, Kira, for this impeccable phone call. So all I'm going to say is that if you live an anti-Autopia lifestyle, you're really going to like next week's episode. So be sure to stay tuned. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit DiscoverSouthCarolina.com. Our family has grown. 
Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. Come back next Wednesday for the first installment of our Hidden Mickey series, where we interview a celebrity who also happens to be obsessed with theme parks. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Please? (laughs) Please. As a Midwesterner, I hate asking this, but honestly, it makes a huge difference. Not to go full Wizard of Oz reveal on you, but the only reason this show exists in the format it does is because I was lucky enough to encounter a string of very smart people who get it when it comes to theme parks. So please, please make sure they don't uh, regret their decision. Every star, every review, every subscription counts and is so extremely appreciated. I thank you in advance and like an NPR money drive, hope to not bother you with this again for a very, very long time. You can find this week's guests across social media. Heather Seavers runs the Dining and Disney Instagram account and is an utter joy to follow. AJ Wolf, captain of the SS Disney food blog, is likely already in your feed, but if not, get on that. The Instagram is fantastic, as is their website and newsletter. Special thanks to Lauren Shonkoff, Max Stein, and Susanna Friedman at Brigade Talent, Caroline Edwards, and Courtney Acochella at ICM Partners, and most of all, Becky Celestina, Tim Ruggieri, and the entire team at ACAST, without whom this would not be possible. Very Amusing is edited by Jeff Fox. Thank you all for listening. See you real soon. Hi, it's Mom. I'm so excited I could cry. But it took me a couple tries to get to you because I wasn't sure how to spell churros. So I had to go back and take a picture of it and do it. Anyway, I told your dad he needs to subscribe. And he's like, well, she doesn't even follow me on Twitter. So whatever that is, uh, he needs to get over it. He needs to have be a subscriber. I'm so excited for you. I love you so much. And if you need me to come and babysit for Morty while you do your show, I'm good. I can do that. I love you. Yay, Carly, I'm so proud. I could cry. All right, sweetheart, talk to you soon. Bye.